Kia ora and hello everyone. I'm Evie O'Brien and on behalf of the Atlantic Institute and the Atlantic Fellows community, I'm delighted and honoured to briefly welcome you to this webinar in our COVID-19 series. Welcome back, welcome to new Atlantic Fellows staff and special welcome to our Obama Fellows, Roddenberry Fellows, Schmidt Science Fellows. Also a special shout out to Meg, who's the Executive Director for the Roddenberry Fellows. Today is an intimate group in the absence of our Rhodes Scholars and alumni who unfortunately aren't able to join us. We'd also like to acknowledge our speakers, Jason, Crystal, Gillard. Thank you for honouring this community with your insights and wisdom. Even though the pandemic is now no longer a leading news story globally, as the world shifts arguably into a space of pandemic fatigue and impatience, as always, we would like to begin today's webinar by asking us to take a few seconds to acknowledge those who have lost their lives to this terrible disease, a disease that continues to ravage the most endangered communities, whose stories were often not amplified before this pandemic and sadly less amplified now. We remember those who have lost their lives before their time in those communities where an entire generation of elders' wisdom and knowledge has been seriously diminished. So if we could just take a few seconds now to remember them. Thank you, everyone. I'd now like to hand over to our moderator, our curator, the holder of space, Tanya Charles, who is the Programme and Impact Lead for the Atlantic Institute. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you so much, Evie, for that wonderful opening and welcome to the community and friends of our fellow fellowship programs. The topic for today is on capitalism and its possible shifts post-COVID. No one can deny that COVID-19 has negatively impacted the global economy. Lockdowns and other restrictions have led to significant job losses and economic recession in many countries. This period has also amplified long-stated calls to examine and even restructure our economy away from its capitalist orientation. Are we seeing signs of this call finally being heeded, or will it be business as usual to the detriment of all forms of life? To help us unpack this, we are joined by three absolutely fantastic speakers who all work on economic issues from many different vantage points. First up, we have Dr. Jason Hickel. He is an economic anthropologist, author, and fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. He's a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics. And he's also a senior lecturer at Goldsmiths, University of London. He serves on the statistical advisory panel for the UN Human Development Report 2020, advisory board of the Green New Deal for Europe, and on the Harvard Lancet Commission on Reparations and Redistributive Justice. Jason's research focuses on global inequality, political economy, post-development and ecological economics, the subjects of his two most recent books, The Divide, A Brief Guide to Global Inequality and Its Solutions, and Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Jason, it's such a privilege to hear from you. Over to you now to share your opening thoughts on the question of COVID and capitalism. Thank you for the very kind introduction. Really happy to be with you all. I'm going to try something a little bit experimental here, an experimental argument I haven't really worked out yet, but I want to see where it goes. So because the title of the session is about the future of capitalism, I thought I would start with the somewhat bold claim that capitalism is primarily responsible at a deep structural level for causing the COVID-19 crisis. 
Now, before I explore this, let me specify what I mean by capitalism here. When people think about capitalism, normally they typically believe that it has to do with markets and trade and businesses and so on. But this isn't exactly an accurate representation of capitalism. Capitalism is, in fact, a system that's only about 500 years old. And markets and trade and businesses have been around for many hundreds of years prior to this. So what makes capitalism distinctive, particularly for our purposes here, is that it's organized and dependent on perpetual growth. It's the first and only economic system in human history that is intrinsically expansionary. So if it doesn't grow, it collapses into crisis, which is what we're experiencing right now. Some have likened it to an airplane. So if you don't keep moving, keep flying through the air, you crash out of the sky. But in fact, this isn't quite accurate because growth isn't about movement at a steady state, like an airplane might do, but rather it's about acceleration. Okay, so a more appropriate analogy would be an airplane that not only has to keep flying, but has to keep going faster and faster just to stay in the air, right? And you can imagine how scary this would become. So capitalism has to grow at a rate of about 3% per year. And that might seem like a small increment on the face of it because we're used to thinking of growth in linear terms. But remember, this is a compounding exponential function, right? So 3% per year means doubling the size of the global economy every 23 years, and then doubling it again from its already doubled state, and again, and so on. So after a single human lifespan, the economy multiplies by a factor of 14. If you were born in the year 2000, think of the size of the global economy in that year, all the production and consumption that was going on at that time. And then by the end of your life, the economy would have multiplied by a factor of 14. That's what we're dealing with here. So what exactly is growing when we talk about growth? We normally think of it in terms of GDP or gross domestic products, but GDP is very tightly coupled to both energy and material use. So the more the economy grows, the more resources and energy it devours. And this is why we're presently facing the reality of ecological breakdown. We're overshooting a number of critical planetary boundaries, and we're now in danger of hitting tipping points in sensitive Earth system processes. But when I say we, this isn't exactly accurate. In fact, the vast majority of overshoot is being caused by overconsumption in a relatively small handful of high-income nations in the global north. So we have what we call global material footprints, which is a metric that tallies up the weight of all of the stuff that's extracted and produced and consumed in the economy every year. Everything from plastics to metals to minerals to timber to fish, everything. 50 billion tons per year is what scientists consider to be a sustainable level. We breached that at the very end of the 1990s, and it's been rising crazily since then. Very closely related is the relationship between GDP and material footprints. For a while, there was some speculation that there would be a kind of decoupling between GDP and material use as economies became more efficient and more technologically advanced and shifted to services and so on. But in fact, we haven't seen that. We've seen the opposite, where material use is actually rising at a faster rate than GDP. There's been a rematerialization of the global economy in terms of countries. Low-income and lower-middle-income countries consume very little, around two to five tons per capita at most. High-income nations are in the region of 28 tons of stuff per capita. Countries like the US and Australia are in the region of 35, so overshooting the boundary by a factor of four or five or more. Now, crucially, the consequences of this hit the global south disproportionately, and the reason is because high-income nations aren't appropriating materials from their own territory. <laughs> They're relying on a net appropriation of materials from the global south, equivalent to about 10.1 billion tons per year in 2015, which is equivalent to roughly 50% of their total consumption. So that's an extraordinary amount of appropriation from the South. So the impacts of overconsumption in the North are effectively outsourced to the global South. Why is this happening? The reason is because in order for capital to maintain an ever-growing rate of surplus, accumulation has to find cheap nature. In other words, places where extraction can be done for cheap. During the colonial period, cheap nature was forcibly taken from the colonies cotton, sugar, rubber, silver, everything. 
And something similar is continuing to happen today. For instance, structural adjustment programs imposed by the World Bank and the IMF might force global South countries to deregulate environmental protections in order to make extraction easier and cheaper for multinational companies. So as a result, what we're seeing is massive incursions into the ecosystems of global South countries on a scale never before seen. This is clear in the case of Brazil with the deforestation of the Amazon for beef farming, in Indonesia for palm oil, in Nigeria for petroleum, in Bolivia for lithium, et cetera, et cetera. But perhaps nowhere has this happened with more speed than in China, which has undergone phenomenal environmental change over the past couple of decades, largely in response to Western demand for resources and materials. And this is where novel zoonoses like the coronavirus come from. Uh, capital's growth imperative is destabilizing ecosystems and releasing dangerous viruses into our communities. And this has to stop. There are many organizations, including the UN, that have been calling for an end to these ecological incursions. But here's my point. As long as capitalism requires perpetual growth, this is difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. You can't just call for it to stop and expect that's going to work. We need to target the root cause of the problem, which is the growth imperative. Before I get there, let's recognize there's another front on which we can see the relationship between COVID-19 and growthism playing out. And that has to do with the political response to the crisis. Politicians in the West failed to respond effectively to the virus because they were worried that doing so might slow down the economy. And that cannot be allowed to happen. This is particularly evident in the US and UK, where it became clear that governments were initially willing to sacrifice people's health in the name of maintaining growth. But of course, there was also a second problem, namely that health systems that have been either partially or fully privatized in the name of growth have had an extraordinarily difficult time coping with this crisis. This is obvious in the US, of course, but it's also clear in the UK where the internal marketization of the NHS has fragmented the system and made it virtually impossible to mount a coherent policy response. So now we have private corporations like Serco running the test and trace system. But something similar is happening in the global south. Take Ecuador, for example. When the virus hit Ecuador, it devastated the country. Bodies were literally piling up in the streets. And the reason was because Ecuador's public health system has been almost completely dismantled under structural adjustment programs over the past few decades, imposed in the name of growth. Now, there's a final piece to this puzzle. We're now in a position where economies around the world have crashed and governments are scrambling to get growth going again. The problem is that analysts are worried that this push for growth will compromise countries' ability to meet their ecological targets. So let's focus on climate change just for a moment. We know what we need to do. We need to achieve a rapid transition to renewable energy. The global target is zero emissions by 2050. In high-income nations, given the fact that they have contributed the overwhelming majority of historical emissions, it has to be much sooner than that, okay? So 2030 or 2035, according to scientists. Can this be achieved? The answer is yes, but scientists are clear that it can't be done while growing the economy at the same time. Why? Because more growth means more energy demands, and more energy demands makes it all the more difficult to roll out sufficient renewable capacity to cover it in the short time that we have left. But in other words, the more we grow, the more difficult it is for us to meet this goal. So what do we do? Well, the first step is to realize that we can, in fact, accomplish a full economic recovery without needing any additional growth at all. This might sound strange because we're used to equating recovery with growth. In fact, that's basically the definition of recovery. But we could choose to solve it more directly. And what would that look like? The first step would be to abandon GDP growth as the primary measure of economic progress and focus instead on what we actually want to achieve high employment, decent wages, good public health, ecological stability, renewable energy, whatever it might be. Target these things directly instead of growing the whole economy indiscriminately and just hoping it will magically yield these results. It virtually never does. In other words, organize the economy around human well-being and ecological stability rather than around growth and capital accumulation. 
The problem right now is not that GDP is down from previous years. The problem is that people don't have the livelihoods they need. Unemployment is high because many industries have slowed down in response to slowing demands. Normally, we solve that problem by doing everything possible to stimulate more growth so as to create jobs, but we could solve it more directly. Shorten the working week, for example. You could redistribute necessary labor this way without having to create jobs that people actually don't need to be doing. Over and over again, it's been shown that shortening the working week has a remarkable positive impact in terms of health, well being, reductions in CO2 emissions, etc. You don't need more jobs, you need a better distribution of necessary labor. The third step is to introduce a public job guarantee with a living wage. This could be centrally funded either through taxation on the wealthy, which clearly needs to be happening, or with something like people's quantitative easing through modern monetary theory. So this would be locally organized in terms of the work being pegged to community needs, whether that be care, producing solar panels, retrofitting houses, regenerating farmland, et cetera, et cetera. We have a discourse already on essential services now because of COVID. We can build on that to organize necessary labor around what our communities actually need. Pegging a job guarantee to a living wage would also raise wages across the board in the private sector, which would shift income effectively from capital to labor. And this brings me to the key point. The key to solving this recession, this crisis, is to reduce inequality. High income nations don't actually need more GDP. The problem is not a deficit of GDP. The problem is that income is all captured at the top. So the richest 5% right now capture nearly half of global GDP. Think about that. Half of our economy's output is done entirely to make rich people richer. That is madness in ecological terms. So the key principle here is that we can solve our social problems right now simply by sharing what we already have more fairly rather than plundering the planet for more. Take the USA. Their per capita income right now, in terms of GDP per capita, is $60,000. Take Portugal. Its per capita GDP is about $20,000. Now, Portugal, despite having 60%, 80% less than the USA, achieves higher life expectancy and better social indicators across the board. How do they do it? They do it by distributing income more fairly and by investing in universal public goods. Over and over again, that's clearly what generates the social outcomes that we're actually aiming for. So the question becomes, does the USA and other high-income nations actually need more GDP or simply a fair distribution of existing income? That's what we need to be calling for. And the final point I want to make here is simply to say that we need significant debt cancellation in the system. Debts come with compound interest, and that is a major driver of the growth imperative. And one of the reasons that across the South right now, countries are scrambling to try to get growth going again, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there have been some movements towards debt forgiveness. <laughs> the G20 came up with a plan to cancel $20 billion worth of debt in the global South. This doesn't come nearly far enough. We need in the region of $1 trillion to $2 trillion US dollars worth of debt suspended in the global South right now. So these are the kinds of policies we need to be calling for, I think. And I just want to conclude by saying, to the extent that we can shift global North countries away from growthism, this actually represents a process of decolonization in the global South. We know that growth imperatives in the North have driven colonization and colonial-like practices across the South for the past couple hundred years. And so shifting away from that imperative is crucial to liberating the South from the pressures of overconsumption in the West. I will leave it there and hand over to my colleagues. Thank you so much, Jason. That's a really provocative and comprehensive picture of how we got here and what we need to do to overcome the imbalances that we have in our society as a result of a growth-based economy. That question of who needs to grow and who doesn't, and in what ways is really quite central to understanding how we've arrived at the state of inequality that we are in. 
not only in terms of how COVID has accelerated that, but as we think to the future about vaccines, who's going to get them when we think about access and money and in whose hands wealth and privilege sit. At this point, it's my pleasure to welcome our next speaker, who is Dr. Gillard Isaacs, co-director and co-founder of the Institute for Economic Justice, an activist economics think tank located in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's also an economist at Wits University, where he coordinates the National Minimum Wage Research Initiative, as well as where he lectures. Gillard has a PhD and a master's in economics from SOAS, University of London, and a master's in political economy from New York University. He has worked as a consultant for the United Nations International Labour Organization, the ILO, and Global Labour University. He has a background in civil society activism, working for the Treatment Action Campaign, and founding the Social Justice Coalition. His research expertise are in financialization, macroeconomics, and labor markets. Gillard and the IEJ have been leading voices in South Africa on COVID-19 economic policy responses, and I believe he's going to talk to that as we think deeply about the question of labor and work as it relates to capitalism. Welcome, Gillard. Over to you. Excellent. Thanks very much. It's a privilege to speak with such eminent colleagues and a fantastic audience here. So thanks very much, Tanya. The introduction spoke about new economies. And indeed, in South Africa, where I am, as in many other places, we've heard a significant rhetoric from our president and others about the utilization of COVID as a moment to build a new economy. And this, of course, reflects the international discourse. I'm actually going to speak a bit about the resilience of neoliberalism as a form of capitalism in South Africa and why what we've seen in response to COVID-19 actually highlights the perpetuation of existing economic norms. I think this has relevance to other countries, some of which will be obvious, and hopefully a case study helps to unpack this. This resilience, I think, helps to explain where South Africa's at at the moment. Just to give everyone a picture, we had an initial very hard lockdown from the end of March, one of the strictest globally. Unfortunately, we failed to use that to prepare our health system adequately, as occurred elsewhere, and we failed to provide the necessary economic support to make a lockdown like that function. We are now number five in the list of the five highest rates of infection, the other four being areas with far larger populations. There's an interesting correlation actually between levels of inequality and of infection, if one looks anecdotally. And I think that is something worth unpacking. I'm going to speak about three mutually reinforcing facets of South African neoliberalism and how they have influenced the response to COVID-19. And it's important to emphasize that they are mutually reinforcing. The first is the implementation and resilience of macroeconomic orthodoxy in South Africa. For those unfamiliar, in a brushstroke, the African National Congress came into power first in a joint government in 1994, and originally held a social democratic type of outlook. In 1996 onwards, this was replaced by a standard Washington consensus neoliberal macroeconomic framework focused on stabilization, liberalization, inflation targeting, low debt levels, and relatively austere spending. Whilst there was a counter-cyclical expenditure after the 2008 financial crisis, 
What we've seen is from 2014-15, the acceleration of austerity, where non-interest government expenditure has grown at a slower rate than population growth, including falls in crucial expenditure in fields like health and education. What we've also seen is at the beginning of this year, before COVID hit, the National Treasury announcing planned budget cuts over the medium term, which in net terms equated to about 46 billion rand, which is off the top of my head about two and a half million pounds, as well as the Treasury focusing very much on microeconomic reforms within the orthodox macroeconomic framework. So now what does this have to do with COVID and with the government's response? Well, firstly, it took about a month of our severe lockdown before any meaningful rescue measures were announced. And this came only after severe pressure exerted over government. They announced a 500 billion rand package, divide that by about 20 to get pounds. And this seemed like it was going to match the type of interventions elsewhere with the main three elements of wage support, business support, and increased social transfers. Unfortunately, this package has been systematically undermined by the austerity mindset within government. And this has meant that the net increase in spending has been less than a tenth of the amount allocated because money has been used, which is reprioritized from other areas, or it's been in loan guarantees, not in actual spending terms. At the same time, there's been a really weak monetary policy response, both with regards to interest rates and quantitative easing. Now, this represents the entrenched power of the National Treasury and Reserve Bank as the guardians of neoliberalism in South Africa and of the selective capacity which we see within the South African state. And that brings me on to the second point, which is state capacity, which has been acknowledged as a major problem by government, but which itself reflects the type of economic orthodoxies which I referred to earlier. Under the Washington consensus paradigm, what we saw in the 1990s was a deliberate trimming down of the state. And now we have that facing this extraordinary crisis. We see this lack of capacity in the failure to roll out the aspects of the rescue package which were actually funded. So the increased social security for which between 8 and 12 million people were eligible, at best estimates about 4 million have received that. And we're not sure whether that's an aggregate figure which is counting the same people over numerous months or if that's new people every time. It's about 4.4 million. In the same way, the various funds for agriculture, small businesses, tourism, all been undersubscribed, underfunded, and inaccessible. This is not unrelated to the first points of the economic orthodoxies, because the type of austerity mindset which we've seen has led to a type of implementation which tries to prescribe and limit those eligible at every instance. So that is stringent criteria, lengthy forms, which small businesses don't understand, and so on. So this intersection between the macroeconomic orthodoxy and states' capacity. 
The third element is the corruption, or as it's known in South Africa, state capture. We're at the moment about 5 billion rand of tenders are under investigation. But whether it is beds for field hospitals or motorcycles for transporting medical supplies, we see a huge inflation of the costs. But this again is not unrelated to the two other elements in that the lack of restructuring of the apartheid era economy, the maintenance of the existing power of capital in that economy, limited options of accumulation for an emerging black middle class. So a parasitic reliance on the state was the natural outcome of an economic system which maintained a severe level of exclusion through its monopolistic, capital-intensive, white-owned structure. And because the process of scaling down the state meant a significant amount of outsourcing. So we've seen that the COVID-19 moment has revealed and reinforced these three cardinal elements of neoliberalism in South Africa. Of course, there is some hope. We've seen in particular various new intellectual debates, the authority of Treasury to challenge the prominence of conversations of care economies and their importance, and a whole range of other conversations. We've also seen some level of mobilization and coalitions being formed across different sections of society. Nevertheless, the ability to achieve the kinds of systemic changes Jason's mentioned mean an acute understanding of the resilience of neoliberalism, both in South Africa and elsewhere, so that we can develop mobilization strategies which account for these intersecting manners of maintaining the status quo. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Gilad. What I heard that's really powerful is the austerity mindset, not only in South Africa, but in the UK and in many parts of the world where the measures that are being offered are limited, stringent and lengthy, and that the needs of the populations or citizens are being outsourced in this time. And as you clearly charted, these are linked to neoliberal policies and sentiments where privatization, outsourcing, uh, at the center of state action. So thank you for that mapping. At this point, I'd like to introduce Crystal Signoni, who's going to bring a feminist perspective more largely into this debate. Crystal Signoni is the director of NAWI, Afrofem Macroeconomics Collective, and an Atlantic Fellow for Social Economic Equity, the program that I hail from. She has 10 years of experience working on macro-level inequalities, Currently, she works on women's rights and macro-level economic policy, regional and global policy spaces. So this means she's working to ensure governments and women's rights organizations understand economic, social, and political policies from a pan-African perspective. She champions for women at all levels to be able to influence macroeconomic policy decision-making and therefore gives a balance of power within these platforms and processes. So... Welcome, Crystal. Over to you. Thank you so much, Tanya, for the kind words. It's really great to be on this panel with some amazing speakers. It's a little bit daunting, but really exciting at the same time. You spoke about, in my introduction, power, and that's something that I obsess over. It keeps me up at night, but also wakes me up in the morning. This whole COVID situation says two things to me. One is really can't go back to normal because normal was the problem. 
also alongside that, the more things change and COVID has changed so many things, the more things really, really stay the same. And I think there's a song around that. One of the real important things that I remember constantly is economics isn't specifically technical. Yes, there's numbers, there's statistics, there's all of that. But more importantly, it's political and really is a question about power. And that is really the heart of the conversations and why we live the lives that we live and see the inequalities that we see. Finance and its central role and capital and private finance specifically is so central in the narrative and the way we organize our economies, our communities, our societies. Just a few weeks ago on the headline of the Kenyan newspapers was a Kenyan government calling for bailouts for private schools, which is a very clear example of a Washington consensus moving to what a few scholars, Daniela Gabor included, are calling the Wall Street consensus and the centrality of private finance and the financialization of our lives. For Kenya, it's really hard to tell, and for so many African countries, where exactly our governments begin and where the World Bank and the IMF stop. And we can see it in our ability to access quality education, quality health care. I've recently been writing a paper on the health system in Kenya and how our government has been using public-private finance models to resource leasing out of specialized medical equipment. And this has been the third highest budget line in our health systems, which means very important things like resourcing community health care, which has been proven to be such a central point of dealing with COVID, have come under such under-resourced mechanisms. And it really begins to show the underbelly of this beast that's neoliberalism and capitalism. Also, we begin to see how governments are beginning to see the things that we've always been seeing on this side of the dynamic. For example, the Kenyan government has been given tax relief in these moments of COVID and has reduced the pay as you earn from 30% to 25%. And you really question with a country where almost 70% of us are, you know, in the informal sector without a formal payslip. Who exactly is that supposed to be targeting? And what does it mean for people who have no jobs and livelihoods now and simply can't afford basic food and to be able to keep alive? Coupled with our governments, trying to emulate what's happening in the rest of the world with lockdowns and varying models. Kenya, for example, didn't have a complete lockdown. What we had was a curfew and a closing in of certain counties like Nairobi because that's where the hotspots are. But it also means that in Nairobi where... It's extremely expensive to live and you're not able to leave Nairobi and go home to your rural area because of the worry that you will take the virus home. What does that mean for you who's outside of the tax relief and the tax cuts and you're not able to survive it? It really brings questions. And so we've seen such an increase in gender-based violence and some argue that COVID exacerbated the numbers, but really it was an underlying systemic issue that constantly exists. And what COVID did was just open up a screen to show what it was for its ugliness. This also ties with systemic underfunding of gender departments like in government. And so speaking to people who work with the gender directorate and the government of Kenya, the questions of, well, there are all these meetings and committees and special sitting set up to respond to COVID and the crisis. But without a resource gender directorate, they just don't have the capacity and the woman power actually to be able to advise all these sittings and committees and new formulations of agencies that are in response to COVID and what means that constantly across the board, as usual, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There just isn't any gender lens on any of these decisions that are being made that are supposed to be responding to COVID. But at the same time, layer this with scandals of what COVID has brought up and Gilad spoke about corruption in South Africa. I think we're competing heavily with South Africa. We've had about $2 billion worth of resources and support to Kenya. A large percent of that has gone missing 
Jack Ma had donated PPEs and all sorts of medical equipment to us that has been stolen. World Bank resources, some of which we're not sure in terms of whether it came as a grant, whether it came as a loan, and if it did come as a loan, what were the conditionalities linked to it? And that vagueity around that is really interesting because the people of Kenya should be at the central point of decision-making for all these policies and plans. However, again, big business, the 1% both globally and the 1% in Kenya are the ones that take precedence over everything internationally, our debt to GDP is about 56% of our ordinary revenue. If you marry that over corruption in the country in this COVID time, in fact, we're calling them COVIDpreneurs, it paints a very bleak picture for a majority of Kenyans who are trying to just live a life of dignity, really. Jason speaks about slavery, sugar, as we went into the Industrial Revolution. And again, something must subsidize the current global economic system. And most of the time, a lot of that is the global south, but also women's bodies. So essential services and essential work and care work really is brought to the fore. Tanya asked me to think about anything positive that has come out. And I think something positive is that care work as an issue after making so much noise for so many years. The other day I was reading a book by Dawn published in 1985. And here I am doing all this advocacy work in 2020, and it's exactly the same things that Gita Sen and Jayati Ghosh 35 years ago had been writing. And I must say, I think they must be completely bored with the current state of affairs, but we constantly have to keep fighting. Both paid and unpaid care work have come into the limelight again. And so I think as a glimmering silver line around COVID, that might be something that we look to. But then again, how much of it is actually making a progressive impact? So when Kenya, for example, has declared because they don't have enough resources, not enough beds, and they've come up with a home-based care policy for patients of COVID, the questions around are people remunerated, are people recognized, who's doing the actual work of taking care of these sick people. But it's also interesting that the world and the narrative is slowly but surely shifting. Whereas before, there was an obsession with tax planners and bankers and all these people in the financial sector that were seen as so, so important to our economies. Suddenly, essential workers and the people who really are the backbone of our economies, our societies, our communities are frontline workers, they're nurses, they're mothers, they're supermarket workers and attendants. It's those people that are really at the heart and the core of our communities, our societies, and definitely our economies. And hopefully we can continue to push this narrative and make sure that they're seen for what they do and remunerated and are able to live lives of dignity. Another glimmer of hope was in the beginning when the global supply chains were so disrupted. Kenya began to make our own PPEs and masks. For all these years, suddenly we're able to do things that so over and over we've been told we're not able to do. But here we are producing our own masks until you take it apart. And the devil is always in the details. The PPEs and the masks, all the raw materials, all the inputs to make them were all imported. And so at the end of the day, the cost to consumers was pretty much the same as imported PPE kits and masks. But further to that, if you really look at the owners of production and you look at the beneficial owners of these contracts, again, it's a 1% of the Kenyan elite. Women, for example, were nowhere in that list of production companies. And again, it questions the inequalities of who gets to produce, who has access to the means of production and the powers that come into play around those conversations. 
So it goes back to, you know, Jason's conversation about our obsession with growth and Africa having this narrative of Africa is rising and this whole intrigue about Africa and why we're not dying and what's happening with us. And suddenly we're a source of so many questions and curiosity around it, but also a source of private finance and the next frontier in terms of with COVID, what business opportunities can arise on the continent. This obsession with growth, but we question growth for who? When a majority of my people, their lives don't change. Access to quality health care, access to quality education for everybody universally doesn't seem to be progressing in any way positive. Those questions really are the heart of what this growth is for and who it's for. But also in the ways that we've been responding. The pandemic has brought about new ways of coming together, new ways of responding. So on the continent, there's been a group of African feminists, some economists, some not economists, really interested and invested in a post-COVID economic response. The African Union announced a group of special envoys. And this group of African feminists, myself included, the likes of Nancy Kachingwe, Lebohan Leopoldo, Fatima Kelleher, a group of amazing thought leaders, African strong voices in the feminist space, came together to write a letter to them. And in terms of a global governance space with the African Union that is funded, almost 70% of their funding external from a majority of the European Union, again, questioning whose agenda the African Union is really pushing. We couldn't find the terms of reference of these special envoys. We know that they attracted about $2 billion in investment into the post-COVID recovery program. How that money was structured, who that money was going to, we have no idea. And beginning to question that and being able to reach the special envoys as African citizens was proving so hard. We question how African can have a unified voice and stand up to global governance systems when we're so entangled and so many strings attached to our economic governance systems, even when they are supposedly ours. But I will stop at saying something that I think is central to this whole COVID crisis and the way we live our lives. I keep saying I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to the world that was. It will probably never come back. I don't think there is a post-COVID world that we're going to go into. I think things have dramatically changed. But at the same time, as they have changed, we're at a crux in history where we can decide which way we decide to go. Do we decide to do things more of the same, just in a different configuration of how we do this? Or do we decide to say, listen, burn it all down. It didn't work. And we really need to dramatically change the way we operate. But something for me in a very personal level is that the world didn't quite fall apart just because we're not killing ourselves with production. We're all working from home. We're not consuming as much. We have a lot more rest. And I think rest as a political question is very central to our lives and what that means. Even right now, I'm taking this call from somewhere near Mount Kenya, which is two hours away from Nairobi. I'm able to do that and still be productive. And I think questions around how we organize ourselves, our lives, what it means to be continuously productive, continuously on this treadmill of life, continuously producing, questioning who we're producing for, I think is central to questions around COVID and how we move forward. Thank you very much. And I will pass on to Tanya. Thank you, Crystal. It is powerful of you to end on the whole question of what does it mean to be productive, which is a central feminist question and feminist preoccupation and how capitalism forces us to have value based on what we produce. And it's links to care work, as you highlighted, and the ways in which invisible care work, the unseen, has actually been what has kept a lot of us going, the care of our mothers, 
women in nursing and other care industries that have been brought to the fore because of COVID and what kinds of work is valuable. So when we have these discussions around labor and guaranteeing work and guaranteeing jobs, as Jason mentioned, whose labor are we really talking about and what forms of labor and work? So thank you so much for that very comprehensive reflection on what's happening in Africa in terms of women's voices around economic policies and development. Natasha is our assistant ED for operations at the Atlantic Institute, and I'd like to ask Natasha to officially close and thank our speakers and everyone for being here today. Thank you, Tanya. I won't aim to synthesize all of those disparate strands into one, but what a rich and exciting dialogue we've had. It's great to hear both decoding and diagnosis today and exploration towards next stages, both deconstruction and reconstruction of meaning reconceptualizing how we see the problem we're seeking to solve and measuring the progress towards the aims that we are collectively creating through our imagining. We may already be seeing the signs of a revision of what's deemed acceptable and successful and what it looks like for us to be acceptable and successful both as individual countries and globally shifting from consumption. So how much of this, I wonder, is reimagining? How much is noticing and connecting what is already emerging and consolidating in solidarity those threads together to shift the policy, to face the challenge of fragmented solutions and to create a macro narrative that we can find our place in? So thank you to Jason, to Gilad and Crystal. Thank you to all of you who showed up. I'd like to remind you that we continue the conversation focusing on vaccine development, distribution and justice 